0: The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.
1: Johnny Wilkinson used to say he always strived to be the 24-hour athlete and he used to imagine that he had a camera on his shoulder watching him 24 hours a day and at the end of the day when he put his head on the pillow could he sign off that for that day he'd been elite all day? The
0: Coaches Network, bringing the game together.
2: Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a performance coach, content creator, and founder of the Coaches Network. And today's episode is going to be part of our How To series, where we discuss a range of topics and, with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps to help you reach your full potential. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network back to the How To series and my name's Coach Jess and I've got a very special guest with me today. Today I'll be joined from across the, across the seas by Head of High Performance at Brisbane Broncos, Paul Devlin. How are you Paul?
1: I'm good, thank you.
2: Brilliant. Paul, just for those that don't know who you are or uh, aren't familiar with your work, you might just go into a bit of detail around who you are and what you do exactly.
1: Yep, uh, so I'm a high performance coach and be kind of whichever field that... Uh, Whichever, I suppose, specialty that lands me in, I'm not quite sure, but uh, certainly I'll give you a brief rundown of my career. I was born in um, northwest England, a little town called Witness, great place, uh, rugby league obsession and soccer growing up. Uh, went on to have a kind of 10-year playing career in um, mostly rugby union, but I played three years in Super League as well. Uh, Travelled across Europe uh, with that, had lots of different experiences, uh, a huge shifting culture. I know it's one of the topics for today. I uh, saw so varying levels of high performance, uh, saw so lots of different styles. And um, As I came to the back end of my career, I had a lot of injuries, uh, nine knee surgeries in the end, two knee reconstruction. Um, I decided that my passion post-career, which was a bit of a concern for me at many points in my playing career, our uh, passion kind of evolved really in in strength and conditioning world and high performance sport and how can you help people be at their best. And so I studied my Masters of Strength and Conditioning at the University of St. Mary's in Twickenham. Uh, that course was led by John Goodwin. Uh, I just thought he was fantastic. Uh, many of the lecturers, Rich Blaygrove, I think was on there as well. Many of the lecturers on, on that course, it was the first year they ran it actually. and um, had a huge influence on, on the initial part of my career. Um, certainly, the best key learning for that for me was from John saying, your master's is pretty much a bullshit detector. Um, and, and I took an evidence-based approach from there on, really. Uh, spent years at the back end of my playing career trying to coach as many kids um, as I possibly could, uh, just to try and gain lots and lots of experience and trying and improve my coach's eye. People used to talk about coach's eye and I, I didn't really know what they meant. Uh, I couldn't get it. <laughs> I found it really challenging. I approached a guy called um, Kelvin Giles. Um, everything I read about Kelvin aligned with the sort of philosophy and beliefs that I had, and so I emailed him one day out of the blue. He didn't have a, wouldn't have had a clue where I was, and uh, just asked him if he if he'd be a mentor to me. And he re- responded straight away to my amazement and said, um, as humbly as he as he is, he said. Um, I'm not sure what you'll learn from me, but I'm happy to help you in any way I can. And so I, from then on, pretty much attended every conference he ever spoke at and listened to him often present the same things over and over and learned something new every time. And and I was lucky enough that at the end of my playing career, I got a nice transition into, uh, into strength and conditioning in various different degrees as rehab coach. I did some with nutrition. And then um, a guy called Brett Davy got a job up at Doncaster Knights and he made me the head of strength and conditioning, which was a fancy title, but that's because I was the only one. Um, but nonetheless, it was an amazing experience. I did absolutely everything I could there. Uh, essentially, it was me and me and Brett uh, with a guy called Lynn Howell there, and and we just we just ran the show. Uh, I made lots of mistakes, but worked my absolute ass off, kept constantly trying to learn. Um, obviously, the internet helps with with learning these days in strength and conditioning, but. Did lots and lots. I got a growth mindset. So I did lots and lots of courses, um, visited lots of really good coaches, tried to expand my network. And my career progressed. I got a job at Hull FC uh, in Super League, did two years there, and then got a phone call from Melbourne Storm. And that's where the Australian kind of adventure started. I worked there for a year and then got offered a job at Parramatta Eels, two years there, and then went to the Rabbitohs, two years there. And then I've just finished two years at the Broncos so it's been a cross globe sort of a, a world lo- lots of sacrifice lots of exciting times lots of really challenging times um lots of learning and uh it's it's a it's a wonderful world the high performance sport world and um yeah it's it's full of adventure it's full of um challenges but I've, I've definitely really enjoyed it i've been very very lucky in my career to have kind of fallen on my, my feet in certain jobs but um, I think that's backed up by w- just working really hard and trying to extend extend the network as much as you can so people kind of know who you are when certain jobs are available. But that's a background for, for where my career is at right now. I'm at a bit of a pivot point at the moment, deciding what the next challenge is. And um, I should yeah pretty much decide that in the next couple of weeks, I think.
2: Brilliant. And I just want to take you back to a couple of things you touched on there uh, initially. Um, first of all, You talked there about you know your philosophy and you know reaching out to you know potential mentors, you know that align with yourself. How you know what what exactly is your philosophy when it comes to you know your work? I guess.
1: I think that's a good question. So when I reached out to mentors, it was probably because I didn't really have one. I think when you've had a playing career, it's really easy to fall into the trap of, and I did it, um, just doing everything that the good coaches or you perceive what you perceived as the good coaches from your playing career, what they did. So I was coached by a guy, a strength and conditioning coach at Sail Sharks called Marty Hume, who's absolutely brilliant. And he he was probably the guy who inspired me to be a strength and conditioning coach really early on when I was at Sail Sharks in England. And because everything he said just made sense to me on how being really strong could help performance and how the fitter you are, he used to say, the fitter you are, the smaller the field feels. Smaller the pitch, and I thought, God, it makes so much sense. Like he used to use, you know, kind of different storytelling techniques and analogies to get his points across. But he worked us really, really hard. And so I think when I was reaching out to mentors, I'd, I probably didn't really have a philosophy of my own. It certainly evolved. And um, I, if I was to summarise it, I use a phrase that you should be able to um, explain your kind of principles on on front of your t-shirt. So you should keep it nice and short and simple. And um, and I suppose if I was to summarise my philosophy, it would be that um, it needs to be based on hard work, hard work with a growth mindset and uh, appetite to learn. and That's the sort of high performance environment I've tried to instill at, at the different clubs that, that I've worked at.
2: Mm. You know, just just kind of, you know, again, touching back on the initial bit, bits that you mentioned that you talk about not really having a philosophy before you identified the mentor. So, just a couple of bits I want to kind of elaborate and delve into the, you know, would you mind just maybe expressing what you feel is the importance of mentorship first of all, and how do you go about identifying that mentor thing? Cause you know, it's a conversation I've had with a lot of people. One of my roles, you know, I work as a coach educator um, on behalf of the FA and I'm constantly encouraging, you know, uh, candidate or coach learners to seek mentorship, um, similar to what you said initially though but you know mentors that are in alignment of their own way of working or the way in which they would like to work if that makes sense
1: yeah it's a great question Uh, it's a really important area I think um, I've always liked to look up to people both as a player in certain teams that I played in I like to have people that I'm looking up to or I'm chasing or that I'd like to be like so you know in in many ways that is a mentor and um, I think when you're identifying a mentor firstly you've got to have a growth mindset so if you haven't got a growth mindset, if you haven't got an appetite and a humility um, to be better and to understand that you don't you don't know it all and that you've got an awful lot to learn, you won't be able to find one. But let's assume that, that most people have. My kind of idea around how to identify a mentor is what do I need to learn most? And that comes through self-reflection on where your strengths and weaknesses lie. And then who epitomizes what I'd like to become and, and how can I learn as much as I can from them so specifically to say Calvin Giles who's one of my mentors for the last kind of 12 years he was a guy born in the UK in in Birmingham who came over and was incredibly dominant in Australian sport both in the athletics world but also in the NRL competition I work in as as an English bloke he, he completely changed the game over here and so for me that fits straight away. One, his, his uh, philosophy was based on incredibly hard work, but it was also very smart in that he, he really valued athletic uh, and movement efficiency and competency as an injury prevention mechanism rather than limiting work. He used to focus on the, the movement of the athlete, or he does focus on the movement of the athlete, which aligned exactly with kind of my thoughts and beliefs as well. So I think we had a natural alignment in philosophy, but he'd achieved something that I was dreaming of at the time. And so if anyone was going to be able to help me develop the capabilities to get there, it was, it was going to be him. And well, I think just a further touch on mentorship, it's important to to understand that uh, you don't have to clearly define it. It's, it's anybody that you're able to um, partake in a mutual relationship. It may be more one-sided, but, Someone that you you identify that you feel like you can learn from. I think being upfront and honest and humble about it at the start and saying, look, would, would you mentor me? I've had plenty of people ask me since I've kind of climbed positions and, and grown it my knowledge base if I would mentor them. And, and I love it when, when people ask that because it, you feel like you're helping someone. Um, mm. And so I think it's really important to identify through self-reflection growth areas uh, and then go about finding someone who epitomizes what you'd like to become. Um I'm glad you mentioned that that you're involved in finding mentors and because it is it is really, really important. Like attending conferences, reading books and researching online will help you. But the other side of a mentor that certainly Calvin's done for me and amongst others um over the years is put you in your place when you need to as well. Because in high performance sports sometimes, especially as you accumulate a little bit of success or you might you know, develop a a reputation at times, um, or you might just be within the wrong environment and adopting behaviours that uh, you haven't seen through your own self-reflection. It's important that a mentor puts you in your place at times as well and just but like your old mum when you're a young fella, you know, just levels you every now and again. And so that's important too, but I think that's built out of trust and it evolves over time.
2: Definitely. You know, so obviously, you know, we're here today to talk about, you know, a high performance culture. Um, so I want to just kind of, you know, move over to that a bit, and you know, I want to start by, first of
1: all,
2: how, what, what do you define as a culture?
1: Yeah, it's good. It's, I've just finished my MBA. Or I'm near enough finished it at AGSM um, in Sydney, and it's incredible how much time is spent discussing and actually in the peer-reviewed research in and around culture, and so lots of different. Um, definitions of it i think myself and the head coach who, who was with me last at the, the broncos have kind of come to agreement having discussed it at length that the culture is is pretty much the way things are done so the way things are done in your organization um sort of silently so not the way you, you know not the rules that, that 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 you live by so not sort of from a sporting situation it's not the fine culture for example so if you're late for a meeting and you get fine, like well and that's, that's a rule. I think it's more um, the, cho- the, the choices that you make, or the, the options that you take with the choices you've got without thinking because that's just the way it's done around here. Um, but it's a fascinating topic to discuss.
2: <laughs> mm. and, you know, obviously it's kind of del- into so it. Essentially, it's, the, the way I see it is almost they're almost there are rules to an extent, but it's almost un un uh, vocalized etiquettes completely in the environment, um, almost. And then, obviously, that's just one. You know, that's the first part. You know, kind of kind of build on that. Then, you know, what what do you define as high performance?
1: So, I think high performance. I, I really like Alistair McCall's work. Um, I've read his books. Uh, I talked to him a bit. He's been over and spent some time with, with the head coach who I worked with at the Broncos last at Anthony Seabold. Um, and, and he had a quote, I'll try and remember it, um, that sort of summed up my thoughts on high performance culture or environment. It was something like, you've got to understand, and I'm really big on this, you got to understand that when you're building a high performance or an elite culture, not everyone's going to want to be a part of that journey and that the high standards required aren't for everyone. Just like excellence isn't for everyone, It's pretty much how we put it. And so I think, you know, what is high performance? It's it's performing above the standard that you thought was possible. Maybe that's the way I'd summarize it. Uh, or getting close to maximizing potential. But if you use that phrase, then you start looking at, well, what is potential? I know we creating limitations on athletes. Um, so that becomes a challenge then to say. But, but I suppose consistency becomes a really important part of that. And Alistair talks about that extensively in, in his books. Um, but certainly, it's it's living to an exceptionally high standard to achieve an outcome, I think.
2: Definitely. And if you I know, just kind of build on that, you know, having that high standard, how do we help? So, you know, you touched there, it's, not for, it's ultimately not for everyone. So what kind of things are we looking at when we're trying to maybe instill that culture? What are the considerations that we might need to, you know, take into account yeah. when we're deciding? What that looks like, who you know, how we're going to instil that. And first of all, you know, within the, within that environment, you've got those individuals maybe who are not naturally, uh, I guess, gravitating towards a high performance mindset or whatnot. How do we how do we get them in, into that?
1: It's a great question, and I've seen some incredibly impressive environments that do it really well. I've been lucky enough to be in some as a player and as a coach, and I've been in some as a player and a coach that don't do it well and that are absolutely terrible environments to be a part of. And um, the fulcrum of it all for me is centered around leadership. And leadership, it has to, in every, every culture, set the direction or the vision. So that is what, what are we going to be as a business, as a sporting team? What are we going to be known as? And so, um, I'll give you an example for one of the clubs I worked at, uh, Parramatta Eels and Brad Arthur's been very successful there as a head coach and completely turning around the environment. And in the two years I was there, um, I asked him that same question. What, what is this club? What is it going to be? And he's, his point was he wanted the team to be known as a team that was, competed, that was fast and aggressive. And so hopefully most of the listeners, um, know what rugby league is and the NRL. It's the team that Paramatheos competes in. And through varying levels of success, the one thing you could always say about that team was they competed and they were fast and aggressive. Sometimes they weren't able to win being that, but they've got to where they are now. And I haven't won a competition yet. They're not at the, They're not at the peak of the mountain. But I think it was really important that he had clearly defined direction and vision. The second part of that then becomes how do you maintain alignment? And a player in the NBA, they study extensively on how do you maintain alignment? Because alignment is absolutely critical. So the final piece of that kind of jigsaw, which is um, commitment and motivation, is tied to that. And so maintaining alignment is all around living the standards, essentially. So so I say all the time, it's easy in sports teams, if we focus on those, it's easy to everybody pack. And pre is a great example of this, right? So in the NRL, the teams are going to return for pre-season in the next two weeks, maybe three weeks, the majority of the teams. And what happens every pre-season I've been involved in is it's all very controlled by the strength and conditioning staff. So um, it's all about learning. It's all about getting fitter, faster and stronger, especially for this pre-Christmas period. Then the players over here get two weeks off, which is great. And then they come back in, there's about a six-week build-up to games. And so there's there's no what I call feet in the fire time. There's no games. There's no judgment on performance. So yes, everything in training is measured. But these these are elite players. These are elite athletes. And so when they're subjected to a a progressive overload training program, it doesn't have to be the world's greatest, but any genuine progressive overload is going to cause an adaptation and they're going to improve. And so mm. the preseason period, there's lots of alignment. You might get a little bit where you know players might not be doing the right thing at the weekends and you might need to bring them back into line or or maybe they're skipping recovery and you have to bring them back into line. But generally, motivation and commitment levels are high, which means that alignment generally is pretty good. And everybody's heading towards the direction that the business or the team wants you to go in. But that's that's what we call um, the smooth seas. And, and the challenge comes is how do you deal with misalignment when you're in the rough oceans, when you lose three games in a row, or when a player has a misdemeanor and you might be your best player and he does something wrong off the field, what happens then? And this is the bit that I don't think teams think about or prepare well enough for. And so then you've got a really, really difficult challenge because what do you do when things go wrong? And how do you handle that? That is what truly defines the culture that will evolve over time. And it's no surprise that the teams, certainly in the NRL, Melbourne Storms, Sydney Roosters, those sorts of teams that over a long period of time, and they've had their ups and downs as well, maybe not Melbourne, but certainly Roosters. And um, over long periods of time, they've managed to uphold standards, higher standards than their opposition for longer periods. And so they've developed cultures and they've developed environments that, that deliver excellence and deliver consistent excellence because That's the, that's the world they live in. So they maintain the commitment and the motivation, which allows them to maintain alignment. And there's a couple of things to say on that. So as far as every business, every team that wants to have high performance is going to fall off the wagon at times. Things will go wrong. And that's to be expected. That's how you build resilience. The the challenge is dealing with them in the right way. And I think, um, you know, I've learned some big lessons in good cultures and, more challenging cultures over my career around um, the importance of the leaders handling those situations well. And so when it when it comes to actually defining how we handle it, there's a couple of things there. So um, different types of power to make decisions in, in teams and businesses. Um, there's positional power. So obviously the CEO, he can make all the calls, general manager, he can make, a lot of calls. Your head coach, a lot of calls. Head of performance, yep. You know, a lot of calls, but in different areas. And um, mm. it's really important that the people with positional power make the tough calls when they need to be made. And when they don't, things start to unravel, but they don't unravel straight away. They unravel slowly. On the flip side, when they do make the tough calls to, to defend the culture, what they create the people who continue to live it, they create what I think Damien Hughes calls them cultural architects. And they're the people who've been living your culture, who've been living your values for a long time. And and they're the people that have got the power to define a long-term high-performance environment. But as you'll see from teams all over the world in lots of different sports that are failing at this, and I've been in teams that are failing at this, if, if you don't have the cultural architects within your team, so that's senior coaching staff, board members, uh, senior executive staff, so chief exec, general manager, and most importantly, senior players, as cultural architects, um, you, will, you will not be able to build a culture of high performance with a plan. You, you, may, you may get some consistency and you may get some elements of high performance in the short term, and you may get distinct fluctuations, but to build consistent long-term success, you absolutely need those cultural architects in the right positions within your organization with the right amount of positional power to to make change and to drive standards at the times when you're in the rough seas, not just when you're in the calm waters. I waffled on a bit there.
2: <laughs> no, no, i in the sense I think it's, you know, the even the use of the word, you the know, cultural architects, I know it, it kinda of leads me on to one of my you know, another question that there's multiple people involved as you know, stakeholders within that process. Ultimately, whose responsibility is it to kind of ensure that but you know, I think you kind of highlighted that, you know, in, in that there's many different things that come into come into play when we're looking at develop, you know, instilling or putting putting in place a new culture or even Reforming a culture that's already in place, but as you said, you know there's loads of people going to be involved in that. We're in different areas of the, of, of that process. Essentially, yeah, I think just to
1: touch on that, I think every every team that fails fails because of its leaders in every in every team. And so, you know, how much time and effort do we put into leadership development? And I think that's that's really important. Again, the best teams that I've been involved in put significant time in it into leadership development and self-reflection for leaders is more important than than anybody else in in any team I've been involved in there's there's probably and it varies but you've got your top top guys who you know as a as a manager of their performance their physical training you might have it might be five percent it might be ten percent it might be fifteen percent but they're the guys who are going to do the right thing no matter what they're going to prepare well they're going to recover well they're going to eat well they're going to train hard whether I talk to them or I don't, and I don't mean talk to them, but I don't have to ride them, I don't have to push them. Then you've got a group at the bottom who need hitting with a stick, metaphorically, all the time. Like they're, they're constantly losing alignment. you constantly got to whack them back into the middle of the road. Sometimes you've got to put an arm around them. Sometimes you've got to punish them. Sometimes you've got to coerce them and coax them. But then you've got another group, and that's the group left in the middle, and... Um, And they're the followers, and and they're the key for me. So when you've got really good leaders in that top 10, 15, 5%, whatever it is, really, really good leaders who live the values and who know exactly where they're going and support the key senior executive staff and the head coach in the direction that the team is heading, those guys have enormous Mm -hmm. influence as leaders over that middle group. And then in every team that I've been involved in, it's important that you've got successful and, and specific churn so at the end of each year that bottom group it's a it's a FIFA they used to call it a Melbourne storm it's fitting or fuck off so if you if you don't buy into that culture and you don't maintain alignment and commitment to the journey that they're on guess what you can't be on you can't be on that bus you've got to go and and they've just removed them you know calvin yeah. giles uses a phrase hire slowly fire quickly and i love it because in from a from a roster management perspective, and I'm not involved in that, but I've seen it done really, really well. But it's the same with your staff as well. When you've got really high performing staff, we need to empower and challenge them in their leadership development. And The group in the middle, we need to be influenced by that leadership group. And then the guys down at the bottom, we've got to support, support, support. But then when it comes to the point where we're saying, hey, they're not buying into the standards that we expect here, it's really important that you, you cut it out very quickly. Um, otherwise, one, one rotten apple ruins the barrel. Uh, just the other thing I would I would say is a really good phrase I found. I'm going to steal it from our head coach who I think stole it from someone in the NBA. There's a couple. So the thing about culture and high standards in leadership is um, it's not a one-time thing. I've, I've encountered a lot of players in the last certainly two years who think that leadership is training hard. And in some instances, it is. Or they think leadership is being the guy at point in the game when things are on the line who want, who demands the ball to make something happen. And in some instances it is, but to be a true leader, you have to live it all the time. You can't choose when you lead. You can't lead on game day when you want the ball, but then take shortcuts with your recovery or your diet. You have to, you have to lead all the time. And then with that in the culture development there's a couple of things. There's one, it might even be from the All Blacks, but I've heard it from someone, I've stolen it from someone, is you need to sweep the floor every day. And, and that analogy is sweeping the floor is you need to remind people of the expectations and the standards every day. So anything from a, a a ritual perspective, anything anyone who lives the standards that we expect, we need to make sure we let them know. Anyone who doesn't, we need to let, sh- make sure we let them know. That's sweeping the floor. And then another phrase that, that the coach came up come up with or stole from someone that's really good is you need to take your daily vitamins, you know, like a lot of people take vitamins every day. You need to take your daily vitamins, vitamins in England, but in America and Australia they call them vitamins. They've converted me. But you need to take your daily vitamins. So with with that, with that, you need to you need to take your daily vitamins and, and with that, that's your reminder to add to the culture every day. When you get leaders, and your influence group adding to the culture every day or actively trying to add to the culture every day, they might not always get it right, that's when you can get a snowball effect and really build some momentum. On the flip side, when you've got a lack of leaders or good leaders, or they're not sweeping the floor every day, things go wrong really quickly.
2: And I think, you know, just you're touching on there about, you know, using... The idea of sweeping, you know, sweeping the floor every day is almost. Are we still covering the basics? You know, so those brilliant basics, just going over those things again and again and again, no matter what position we're in. I think it's, it's almost in a leadership position as well. Sometimes it's, uh, it, it gives an opportunity for those potentially seen as maybe followers or people behind you to see yeah. that you're still you're still doing it. You're not you're not just barking orders and not and not leading by example essentially. Um, which I think is very important, you know, and just kind of kind of build on that then you talk, you know, you say leadership, obviously a massive part obviously, do, you know, instilling that culture. Um, how do we, how do we identify Or you know, how long do we give ourselves to, you know, if we are going to maybe reframe a culture or restructure it, or even bring in a new culture or try and establish one, is there, a, is there, is there an ideal timeframe that we, you know, we kind of give ourselves to kind of, you know, put something in place or, what does that look
1: Good like? Good question, so I'd love to have the answer to that specifically with a time frame but I think it depends on question number one is identifying through a diagnosis of you know talking to people, observational where are we right now What is how, how are things done around here and every club I've ever gone into I've tried to do that and it's amazing the things that you see if you just step back and watch and then where are we going to get to like what? What are we doing? Where are we trying to get to? What is the standard we're looking for in lots of different areas? What are the things that we're going to value? And then from that point, then I suppose you can you can create steps to get there. So you, there's obviously non-negotiables, and everybody has different non-negotiables. Every every club, every group, every team, they'll have different non-negotiables. Um, and then there's the the behaviours that we just want to see. I think what is really important is establishing. So to speed up, maybe to answer your question a bit differently, to speed up the process of transition from, which is a change management process really, transition from one to the other. The reason I use just to further go on the sweep the floor analogy. The reason I use that is because if you think about your home, you know, if if you don't vacuum, you know, your, your kitchen after the kids have eaten. I don't know what yours are like, but mine. If you don't vacuum your floor and you just leave it, if you don't sweep the floor every day, it gets messy, doesn't it? That's exactly like. What happens in a sporting team or in any team, to be quite honest, if you don't if you don't constantly live to a standard and enforce that standard, then it gets messy. The difference with behavior is if people start living like tramps and not caring if it's messy. So that's that's a bit more on that. But on the flip side of that, how can we transition our culture quicker? I think one leadership. So role modeling. It's really important that you're leaders at every level and you have to identify leaders and some will emerge who you don't identify, it's really important that they embrace the change process. So in the business world, they call that group the coalition. In, the, in sporting teams, they call it leadership group. And those people, it's really important that they role model. They've got to role model the behavior that we expect. But similarly with that, I think it's really important to have specific routines and rituals for when people do hit the standard because we all like to be rewarded. Okay, so rewards, specific rewards for people who've lived the values, uh, recognition from key people also is is hugely important. Um, in the NRL, some of the teams I've worked at have been exceptionally good at recognising milestones. Um, and then also another piece um, that I think is is phenomenally important is is the art of storytelling. So taking someone, taking people on a journey, and reminding people of where we've come from. Anytime we make a pro- progressive step towards the kind of high performance environment that we want to live in, anytime we make a significant jump towards that, it's really important that we we bring them on the journey and tell the story and um and really celebrate that win. Celebrate that win. Even if it's not a win on the field, we celebrate that win. Um because that's how you'll build momentum for change. Uh, similarly, again, I'm going back to it because I've seen bad as well recently that if the leaders aren't leading, if they're not role modeling, and in some instances, if they're role modeling the opposite of what you want, then you will go backwards at the the same speed, if not faster than the the speed you would go forward on the flip side. And so it's it's super important Mm. that you're incredibly protective of where you're going. Um, And that, yeah, like I said, reward recognition and uh, storytelling delivers things like discretionary effort. People going above and beyond.
2: So just on that, you know, on that, regarding the rewards and the, you know, I don't want to, can you give us an example of what that could look like? You know, because obviously I think we all know what rewards are, but what, how, how, what does that look like yep. in a sporting context or in, in, in when Absolutely. I'll give you the best
1: example I've seen. And uh, Anthony Seabow came up with this, so I'll credit him. But what we wanted was to develop in a team, it was at South Sydney Rabbitohs, and um, we wanted to develop players who just put the team first. I think most teams would want that, wouldn't they? But we had clearly identified that. We want players who put the team first. And so he went away and researched. I don't know where he got it from, but it was very, very smart. He came back and um, he told a story about the importance of the yellow, uh, sorry, the the domestique in cycling. And so the domestique is pretty much a quintessential example of someone who puts the team first. So he gets up in front of the peloton and rides into the wind for his team. He goes back and gets water from the, from the car to bring it up to the cyclist. And, and he, doesn't, he doesn't win when, it's, when the Tour de France, he doesn't win. The Domestique doesn't win. Okay, he's, he's there to help the team achieve. So he's a kind of quintessential example of someone who puts the team first. And so what we brought in was, as a recognition and reward, is when we saw at each game, the coach and the coaching staff would judge who was the domestique for that game. And that domestique would get a, a financial reward, be it like a voucher from one of our club sponsors But he also got to wear a yellow jersey, a specially made yellow jersey, kind of commensurate with the, the Tour de France in training that week. So that was our way of valuing. It also, pretty big on... The, the picture went on the wall as well. So um, action shot from the game. And it, what it allowed the, the coach to do or sometimes some of the senior leaders in the playing group, was to highlight why. So why is he the domestic this week? And what you're finding that is certain players become the domestic regularly and it highlights to the rest of the team, Yeah. these are the guys who are putting the team first. And so in a good high performance environment, that should be a motivating factor for everybody because who doesn't want to be in a team where other players look at them and say, my God, he puts the team first. That's that's the quintessential example of a perfect team member, isn't it? I want him in my team because he helps me be better.
2: I no, totally, totally, understand it. I think you know, that's a great way of doing it. Um, in terms of obviously, you know, so something else that I want to take you back to something you touched on earlier about, you know, uh, not just the mentorship side of things, but I guess it kind of it kind of falls into line with this as well in terms of being an athlete or or person. Under that that you know that new regime or culture shift, however you wish to view it, that idea of a growth mindset. How do we get athletes and you know through your experiences, what what kind of things have you done in the past to try and, uh, I guess, develop the athletes that you've worked with into potentially having a growth mindset if they haven't already got. Uh, yeah, it's a
1: good athletes. question. I think it's certainly it's got a lot more media and and um, exposure in schools, the notion of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. I think being inquisitive and having a desire to improve and not feeling like you're uh, the finished product, which is, I suppose, in some instances a simple definition of a person with a growth mindset, feeling like you can improve yourself, is in some ways a prerequisite to being uh, an, an NRL footballer or an elite athlete. Um, so it's, it's not often that we get players who don't have a growth mindset, but I would say there's a scale on that as well. Um, and, and it's more in and around probably yeah. how do we get players to understand and develop things that they don't necessarily agree with? And so there's a couple of sides to that that are really important. And that's, um, how do you have the tough conversations? And that is a, that is a challenge for anyone who's worked in the pointy end elite sport or any business, to be quite honest. The the quality of leadership is determined by the ability to have tough conversations and the ability to be able to tell someone something that they don't want to hear. And so from a player, that might be telling a player that he, let's go from a physical performance perspective, that he's not fit enough to be able to play at the level that we need him to. And so linking back to the growth mindset side, I think having a growth mindset for that player allows him to develop the perseverance to be able to to grow. And so if I think about, if I tell a player, look, I don't think at the minute that your fitness levels are high enough to be able to fulfill your role. I mean, how do I, and he disagrees with me, for example, how am I going to be able to explain that to him? So if he disagrees with me, it can be just purely opinion, but it can also be, uh, he thinks something else is the deciding factor. So certainly though, there needs to be a conversation, but um, I think what I've always tried to do is use evidence and be able to really clearly define what is the intensity required from a physical perspective to be able to play this game the way the co- head coach wants us to. And it's, that's a very important piece. Not the way I want to, the way the head coach wants to. My job is to prepare the team for the head coach and different head coaches want different things. But then at that point, we should be able to establish And intensity requires that, luckily, because of the technology we've got now. How well is that player achieving that? Is he able to? And so maybe that's an example of a player who feels like he can improve sometimes. A player who doesn't feel like he can improve sometimes feels like he's got a limiting factor. I've had players who say, I just can't get any fitter. I can't get any fitter. And we have to take a holistic approach. Similarly, with skin folds, uh, Mm. You, you, you're flogging me every day. I'm eating really well, but I'm not, I'm not losing the fat like you said I would. And you know, that's my limited factor. I'm just born like this. That's a good example of a fixed mindset. I think I'm just born like this. This is me. This is how I am. And in very, very rare circumstances, we've had players who we just couldn't reduce their, their skin folds enough. Um, but, but generally, when you look at it holistically, there's an answer somewhere. And so encouraging the athlete to look at all different areas of his life to work out why that might be happening. And sometimes it's stress-related, it's sleep-related, there's so many factors. Trying to convince them is essentially, that is a a growth mindset, isn't it? That, hey, there is a way of doing it, we've just got to find it. That's a good, I suppose, a better way. I've I've talked for a couple of minutes there, but finally got to it. That's a good example, I think, of, a growth mindset. Uh, I think it's probably, it's easier to describe from a, from a coaching perspective, be it strength and conditioning staff, um, analysis staff, but specifically then technical coaches too. And there is a real te- tendency yeah. in strength and conditioning coaches or in, in, a, let's call them the performance staff and, and technical coaching. There's a tendency to develop a fixed mindset. Like I, I did it this way in, in this year and we won the competition. So that's the way of doing it and ignoring you know but really we don't know why teams win otherwise we just repeat it the next week and win again like it's it's a really complex and chaotic process trying to trying to win in field invasion sports and so no one has the answer some people have got more answers than others and but there's always lots and lots of different uh, ideas behind why teams win and so I've, I have seen coaches and I try to avoid it myself and try to avoid it in, in my staff, uh, develop that mentality of trying to repeat the same thing over and over and get, and get a different result. Um, yeah. you know That worked with one team. I want to do that with this team. And so I kind of use the phrase, um, 10 years experience is very different from one year's experience 10 times. And so again, that links back to growth mindset. Yes. I think it's really important to understand every year with your team, it's going to be different week to week, every game, it's going to be different. So we need to have a a growth mindset every day, (laughs) that things are different and what we did yesterday might not work today. So we need a a significant review process and self-reflection to be able to see is what we're doing, is what we're doing working? And if it's not, then we need to pivot and change.
2: And I think, you know, just kind of, just kind of build on what you said there, I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, having the foundations essentially stay the same, but they, you know there's always gonna be subtle differences and changes that need to be made based on the Completely. so the, that the, the,
1: the foundations are your standards. So they 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 need to be non talent related areas, yeah, there, the effort areas in elite sport because they're a choice. And and anyone can make the choice to to, sure. to live those. That's culture. But but sort of growth mindset and fixed mindset more specifically can sort of rear its ugly head when it comes sometimes to tactical approaches or sometimes to strength development or sometimes to conditioning development or sometimes to rehab, you know, in any area of high performance environment, that's how we did it there and it worked. Well, why is it not working now? You have to have a growth mindset and be constantly curious about how you can find better ways of doing things.
2: Definitely. And then kind of just on that thing, when we're looking at, you know, back to the whole cultural side of things and setting that culture You've assessed obviously a growth mindset is obviously going to be a key part of that, you know. So, it, it, you know, if we go back with the analogy of FIFA, or the acronym of FIFA rather, um, you know, essentially, if you're not going to be part of that, and you're not you're not in alignment, you're not going to, you know, uh, get on board with what we're doing, then you know, you kind of see yourself out of this. What are some of the you know the key indicators for us to kind of look at whether, our, I guess, the cultural procedures that we're trying to in, instill or put in place are successful and obviously you, know, you talked there a little bit about things from a I guess a technical coaching perspective or a technical standpoint as well as the you know, yeah. performance side of things are there things that we universally I guess lean on as, as indicators of successful potential yeah training? I think
1: there are I think um something else I stole from someone but I think is really smart and, and we used it last couple of places I've worked is and um, you need to define success before you start so I think what does it look like? Well, how will we know when we've ingrained the standards and behaviors that we want to see in, in the group that we're working with? And in some instances, like most recently, we, we never saw it, <laughs> but in environments where you do, what does it look like? And I think my opinion is, I think that I believe that you get, you're changing culture or you're seeing a positive culture when the behaviors and that we want to see, um, you observe the leaders, and I'm talking about the playing group here. The leaders within the playing group self-policing, and and you have don't have to intervene as a coach at all. So that might be the simplest example is you know a player is about to eat the wrong food. I always go back to the physical area because it's my area, but a player is about to eat the wrong food on an away trip, and a leader says, "Mate, you know, I think you should be eating that? I don't think you should. That's not going to help you." And then importantly, the other player says, "Yeah, fair enough, mate." And that is someone living and holding standards. And that's a simple example. You know, the obvious ones around the player, not player cutting corners when he runs around the pitch, a player not making the line. But it, it's really important to understand that Johnny Wilkinson used to say he always strived to be the 24-hour athlete. And he used to imagine that he had a camera on his shoulder watching him 24 hours a day. And at the end of the day, when he put his head on the pillow, could he sign off that for that day, he'd been elite all day? Now, that is extreme. And, and Johnny's talked at length about how, in, in many instances, it potentially hindered him. But I loved that when I was younger. I used to love it. I think, God, you know, that's what we should be striving towards. Um, so we can't judge. We can't see what players do when they leave our facility. So we then re- we rely on external mm-hmm. markers. Um, I think it's hard to quantify a change in culture uh, in, in the sporting world. Um, but I think you can certainly objectively uh, see see behaviour change. I think you can see players turning up earlier, like Alastair McCoy again talks about. Um, you should watch the warm-up really carefully. I'll watch the kind of 15, and I've done this, watch the 10 to 15 minutes before a coach-led warm-up starts and watch what your players are doing. I encourage anyone to go to any team and watch that. And the best cultures, the high performing teams, players are in little groups working on skill development or working on preparing for the field session that's about to start or the gym session or whatever it is. You know, I've been around lots and lots of teams around the world and I've specifically watched that after Alastair put it in his book. And and that's a really, really good indicator of what what the environment is like. But another great one that I'll give you that I spent a bit of time in uh, exploring NFL and college football teams in in America because I I love the NFL. And something that I found brilliant from a cultural perspective was I went into the LA Rams um, because I'm a really big fan of Sean McVay's work. And the guy who's the head of strength and conditioning at the time, I had a performance, Ted Rath, um, invited us in. And and what I saw there was something that I saw when I worked at Melbourne Storm and something that I saw uh, a couple of other teams I worked at where the the environment has been high, high performance and what I call elite. And it was, you got the same message no matter which staff member you spoke to. And they didn't know who I was going to talk to. But I asked everybody a bunch of questions about how they deal with certain things. And they all kept referring back to their values and their culture continually. And so, you know, they hadn't been told, you need to say this because we've got guests coming in. Like they were telling me, I just, I just what I saw if I turned it into a leadership framework, I saw absolute alignment on how they handle situations, which if we go back to the start of this conversation, we defined as culture you know and so I saw live or heard lots of people explaining how how they handle things in a way that aligned with their culture and values and it was a, it was questions around people were thinking what were the questions it was around things like you know what what do you do if a player acting up in the warm up and or what do you do if a player turns up late or and they just constantly, they all said the same thing. So when you've got lots of people saying the same thing, that's a clear indicator to me that they have a set of, uh, behaviors that work for them and they police them. And don't get me wrong, there were rules too. Yeah. Like they need rules. And a good example of that was, um, in the NFL, there's a, there's a twice weekly weigh in. And so Sean McVeigh is of the opinion that, uh, as an elite athlete, paid a lot of money generally, those guys. Um, it's an honor to be an elite athlete. And so you, you, all you've got to do from a personal perspective, lots of things are taken care of you by the team. You've got to keep yourself at the right body weight because it's really important in NFL, you know, especially the all-line guys. And it's really important that they maintain the correct weight. And so there's this twice-weekly weighing and the NFL players association has a defined fine scale. So you can find players if they're a pound above or below the weight that they're expected to be in. And so when he came into the LA Rams, he was in a change process. He wanted to change the culture. And a good example of how to change it and set standards early on, he set the fine or the penalty at the LA Rams at the maximum that the NFL Players Association allows per pound. And so in some instances, they told me about examples where in the first year they were there and they were on that change process and people were, were they were getting misalignment. People were falling out of the lane. They were fining players $15,000 twice a week because their body weight wasn't where it needed to be. Now, if that's not a definition of high standards, <laughs> I don't know what is. And I said to them, right, you're, they're in their third year now. I said, how many people have been fined this year? And so, that, remember, that's, that's one week, $30,000 for one player. There's 103 on the roster at certain times fifty three in season or something but they showed me the board, and so in year three now, how's their culture evolved? There's a board there showing the number of dollars in fines for the year and we were in round we would have been uh round maybe five or six last year, and they had three thousand dollars in fines so far, so that's the whole of the preseason and five or six rounds, whatever it was so it it just shows. That's now become a learned behaviour. That's now a standard that they live. And I said, how how many people, not just specifically for that, yeah. but I said to the coaches, how many people just couldn't fit into that? And they said, mate, they said we had to eliminate people who couldn't live that standard. We had to move them on very quickly, because if we don't, exactly like I was saying before, one rotten, rotten apple ruins the barrel.
2: Definitely, I think that's a great, you know, great way to look. Obviously, you know, it's, it reminds me of a, a story of um, I'm not sure if you know Mark Warburton, QPR's first team manager. Over, here. Um, basically, he was uh, at an old, another club a few years back, and they had, he came in. He's, you know, traditionally, his background is uh, working in the city as a banker. He he, uh, he came in and introduced a, a, a basically a, a scheme for. Well, an incentive scheme of some sort, I guess, if you want to call it that, for the players in that squad, where they were fighting for promotion, um, and essentially they were all given a a blanket. A I think it was. I think the figure might have been a million, a million pound bonus at the end of the season if they got promotion. Um, but any time they didn't live up to certain things or certain things, certain boxes weren't ticked. Essentially, uh, a figure would come, That figure would drop. So where they might lose, you know, if, where they might be a game where they've drawn as opposed to one, they've lost twenty grand. Or if they're, you know, if they're if they're a, if they're a, a, a certain forward or expected to score goals and yeah. they haven't scored, then they lose a figure yeah. on that. Um, you, you get the gist. And I think for you know we touched on it in the first few weeks, people weren't really looking at it. They're just like, oh well, it's only, it's only a two points drop or well, no. Actually, it's, it's thirty grand drop from your bonus. Um, as soon as they started to clock onto that sort of stuff, they like, oh okay, well, yeah.
1: And home. again, high performance cultures. In the end, same as at, at the LA Rams, and the same as in anything, you provide a consequence at start, so that you're, you're essentially providing accountability, and then you're asking mm-hmm. them to take responsibility. But really, when you get to the high performance culture, and, and people are living the standards, they do it because they want to. I suppose that that's where we're trying to get to, aren't we? We're doing it because mm-hmm. because they want to. Like, it's it's just what you do around here. It's like what we mm-hmm. started with as. Definition of culture. That's the way we do things around here, and so it shouldn't. It's not a monetary fine. It's because that's what you do there. Like I, I don't believe that the LA Rams players when I yeah. was there were avoid were, were turning up in the right at the right weight to avoid a fine necessarily. I think the guys who've been there for the three year period with Sean and Ted, yeah, they were turning up because that's the way you do it there, and they they they'd tasted success. They'd been to the Super Bowl. They know yeah. that all these little things, you know. The non talent related areas, their choices, their choices, and so there's a consequence there just to provide accountability but but really, if they, if they eliminated that consequence if, it, if it's a truly good culture, then the players will and the people will still live the values
2: definitely so just you know just to kind of as we start to wind down now we've got one I think key question for you here we've now gone through a global pandemic how do we continue to still a high performance culture and
1: a mindset It's a good question um, like there's a couple of things I'd pick up on on that I think uh, I'm a really big believer in gratitude I think if COVID's taught us all anything uh, certainly everybody I've spoken to it's that we're incredibly lucky to be to have jobs and and if we haven't got jobs to have our health, you know it's it's i've had some some um situations where I've been reminded of that myself you know it's it's incredibly important to have gratitude, and when we've got gratitude, I think we're willing to sacrifice a bit more or we're willing to go through tough times tough times build resilience, all those things but I think when I drill down into what it takes to be absolutely elite and we're coaching you know when we're trying to coach players to be the best they can possibly be when you drill down into it it, it's really frustrating when you encounter players and I've played with some and I've certainly coached some who when you talk to later on in their career they wish they'd sacrificed a bit more or they wish they'd appreciated the career they had every single player you ever meet apart from me you know I would say every player you ever meet looks back and says, I probably didn't quite appreciate it as much as I should have done when I was going through it. And it's the same for coaches. Any coach who gets to work in elite sport, I think it's really important that we, that we appreciate it. I think that's, that's one of the key takeaways from, from COVID. And then how do we instill elite performance on the back of it? Or what can we leverage from the experience? It's for me, um, and, you know, if I, if I do continue in, in elite sport and high-performance manager role, absolutely one of the first things I'll be talking to the playing group about come pre-season will be, guys, let's, let's just look back at the year that was and realise how incredibly lucky we are to be getting paid to do what we do um, in a beautiful part of the world for us, but it's the same for any, yeah. any team anywhere. And, you know, I get, I get to coach these elite athletes with a bunch of very, very good, coaches and um, every day. And so when you, when you activate that sort of gratitude within yourself, I reckon you're able to show a bit more resilience and um, maybe that's something we can take away from COVID because I think everybody's been hit hard financially. Certainly all the coaches I know in Australia have had to pay some sort of price financially, but, but, you know, I always, Remember, my dad used to say, if you if you find something to do that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I certainly have felt like that in sport. It's just it's a passion. I've been doing it since I was five. And
2: yeah.
1: maybe maybe COVID reminded us of that. I hope so. Um, that that we display real gratitude for for what we do. Um, and and maybe that will then allow the athletes that we work with as coaches to to make to realize what they've got to and to potentially make more sacrifices and. And maybe we can build more high performance cultures a bit quicker than ordinarily we would. Brilliant.
2: Just a another final note then. You know, we're talking, looking at developing a high performance culture or, or putting one in place. Would you mind just taking us through some, you know, steps on how to kind of, in, in some actionable steps for the listeners and, you know, for anyone, anyone?
1: Yeah, so I'll talk you what through what you kind of was. what we did in the last uh, club I worked at, and um, I think it's establishing non-negotiables number one. Mm. So, like I've spoke about already on the podcast, it's really important that you define where you, what the success look like. Where are you going? Where are you going to go to? What does it look like? And then um, we can sort of work work our way through it, but we know where we're going, right? So it's really important that you define success. Then really important that you set your non-negotiables, whatever they are, timekeeping, you know, body fat, I don't know, whatever it is. But you set those non-negotiables. They're things absolutely that we're going to defend. From a cultural perspective, there's a couple of things that are really important. Um, once you've got an, in, you've got a culture right now, and so you know where you're trying to get to, you know how you're trying to change it. You understand there's going to be some steps and roadblocks along the way. How do you induct people into it? I think people often miss that. There's a really smart leadership coach in Australia called Gary Dooley who worked with itself talked extensively about induction and it it totally set me aback. I thought, I've never thought of that. So So you think about the turnaround in playing staff and coaching staff every year in teams. How do you induct those people into your culture? So you need to develop a process around that. And from a retention perspective, I think it's really important that players and staff that are retained year on year are cultural architects on a pathway to develop becoming developing cultural architects and if they're not they can't be here that's the ruthless side that has to happen i think then the culture that we tried to develop was was people first and so it's really important as well especially as as the world's gone that you know that How are we helping the players with their welfare and their well-being at home? So I talk about them making really good choices and being the 24-hour athlete. What are we doing to support them when they leave the training facility? Similarly with the staff, what's the staff development plan? Have we written that down? How are we going to develop that? Because the more we develop our people, the more they'll feel that growth mindset and display the growth mindset, and the more they'll feel like they're in an environment that helps them be the best they can be and so that that that's kind of the epitome of high performance, okay, Mm -hmm. so it's important that we show them how much we care about them, you know, the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, Um, and check in regularly, so I I abolished kind of wellness questionnaires about four or five years ago, and I know lots of people use them, that's fine, like I said, there's always more than one way to skin a cat, but I abolished them because we developed something we call duty of care groups, and so they got shortened to docs groups and in, uh, in classic Australian fashion. But what that was, one of the senior coaching staff took a group and they were allocated five or six players. And then Anthony seabold coach I worked with, came up with a great idea of breaking the group. So that five or six people, players within your group was a mixture. So it might be a 32-year-old married guy with three kids and an 18-year-old in his first year as a professional. Like They haven't got much in common. So would they talk in the training facility very often? Probably not. But what he said was, by using these, these duty of care groups, it was on the head coach, uh, sorry, the, the leader of the duty of care group, so each group had a senior staff member as a leader, to organise some sort of catch-up once a week in pre-season and then once a month in season. So what that meant was that as a group, there was a little group you could rely on there who'd check in. They might go for a coffee, but quite often they went temping bowling, we had one group go and um, do an art class where they had to paint a picture and they had a laugh, and other groups go out for a few beers, other groups would go out for dinner, but they connect and they bond, and there's, that's a, a bunch of people who might ordinarily not talk to each other an awful lot, but they were keeping a connection, a touch point, point. and it also enabled that senior senior coach or leader in the group to be able to re- um, provide feedback on, on any sort of things we might need to know around well-being and i suppose that's that's an example of how you make sure that people know you care and and then the other thing i think is really important to touch on just finally is 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 perseverance and um and hanging in because any any change management process uh is going to encounter resistors and is going to encounter it's not going to be a linear path to success or i haven't been a part of one that is And I think it's really important that you accept that at the start and Mm. and don't lose faith. Um, Like I say, I think the cultural architects play a huge, huge part in that, but it's important that there's perseverance that we know where we're going, celebrate the small wins as we're progressing, but accept and understand that things will go wrong at times the shit will hit the fan and and we've just got to deal with that. Um, But we deal with it based on our values that we defined at the start. I think, I've been in teams, certainly this year, where that's, that's kind of fallen apart. When you know that we didn't have the cultural architects we needed to help us when things went wrong, and so then it then it becomes a completely misaligned environment. And when you've got a misaligned environment, you can't uphold standards because everybody's got a different opinion on what high performance is. And then it's messy.
2: Brilliant. I can totally understand that one. Um, Paul look very insightful and I think it's been very helpful for me to kind of take on board some of the stuff that you've you've touched on there. Um, but if the listeners had any further questions around what we've discussed today. Yeah, absolutely. To touch, so um, probably that?
1: the best way is through something like I mean, I'm not a huge poster, but something like Twitter. So my handle there is Paul Devs, D E V S. Um I don't check my, my emails all that much, mainly because as I've changed clubs, I've got a different email all the time, so I tend to lose touch with people. But Twitter has been a common Sort of um, sure. theme for me, and I find heaps and heaps of um, really good stuff from again people I've mentioned. You know, Alistair McCaw, Gary Dewey's, you know, a fabulous leadership coach. I love mistakes. There's, there's loads of them out there, so I'm I'm constantly plagiarizing somebody.
2: Well, there you have it, guys. You've been listening to another edition of the Coaches Network How To series, where we discuss a range of topics and, with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps for you to reach your full potential. Now, I've got no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again, guys. You know, your support is massively appreciated. So thanks again for everyone that's been tuning in, and please do get in touch with us and today's guest to let us know where you're listening from, to share your thoughts, your views, and your key takeaways from today's show. Along with any suggestions for guests you'd like to see on the show and any topics you'd like to hear discussed, ultimately, guys, the show is about you guys. So let us know what you're interested in, who you're interested in listening from, so get, get in touch. And on that note, guys, you can get in touch on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. But Please do not forget to use the hashtag The Coaches Network. That was the hashtag The Coaches Network. We need as much support we can get to keep this great content coming out to you. Now, lastly, guys, I just want to say keep an eye out for our socials on the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with our panel. Until next time, guys, take care and have a great day.
0: The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.